0: My name is Sarah Hendren, and I am an artist and a design researcher and a professor and a writer, and I teach at Olin College of Engineering. My work in multiple kinds of forms engages disability, the politics of disability rights and advocacy, and it's through the lens of design and technology.
1: Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on here? Sorry, guys. Sorry to interrupt. This is Tina from the future. And this is future Mia. And you're
2: listening to a sp- special episode of No, The podcast about having a business at the intersection of design and healthcare.
1: Why are we interrupting people from the future,
2: Mia? This episode, we are talking about designing with disability, and our past selves talked to Sarah Hendren, who is a designer, artist, and writer, as you just heard, and she's built her whole body of work around this topic. And when we were editing in the future, we realized that she is such an amazing speaker and has such an incredible point of view on this we thought we would just leave it be.
1: Yeah she's kind of a genius. She sounded so amazing that we said why are we recording this podcast?
2: (laughs) We're gonna read her book too which comes out I think sometime next year. It's exciting. But in the meantime we hope you enjoy this episode. Enjoy.
0: My work in multiple kinds of forms engages disability, the politics of disability rights and advocacy, and it's through the lens of design and technology. So as I said, I work in an engineering school and typically um, engineering schools greet disability in the form of prosthetics and assistive technology. And so I do some of that collaborative designing prosthetics but in a highly unusual kind of way. But all of my work that spans between art and design and engineering is trying to just awaken the politics of disability and its relevance for everyone.
2: Did we hear that the new symbol for the wheelchair accessibility is yours?
0: Yeah, that's right. So I'm the designer, the original designer of an alternate icon for um, the international symbol of access and a co-founder of the project called the Accessible Icon Project. And that project, shall I tell you a little bit about it? Yeah, Yeah, tell us how it came about. We'd love to kind of the origination. Yeah, sure. So I was um, back in 2009 and 10, I was um, pretty regularly writing on a a blog on my website. This is kind of before the days that social media sort of concentrated and aggregated the way people shared things. And so I made this blog that was sort of magazine style. And I wanted it to be about disability and design, but um, mixing together things that were really familiar kinds of prosthetics, like artificial limbs and that kind of thing, with much more evocative objects uh, showing all the ways that bodies use augmentations and extensions. So things like um, smartphone apps that were just coming out at that time and rethinking things like eyeglasses, all all those kinds of technologies. And I was trying to mix those together and to get people to think about disability in a new way. So again, this is, you know, going on 10 years ago. And along the way, I noticed that once in a while, not often, but once in a while, you would see a permutation of the international symbol of access. So if people are listening, you can think about the international symbol of access as that blue and white image that you see on um, protected parking spots and doorways where there are ramps to buildings and so on. So there's a a stick figure sitting in a chair. And I noticed in those days when I was kind of tracking and blogging and writing regularly, that once in a while you would come across an alternate icon. And I, I found it at places like MoMA and but also at places like Marshalls here locally in Cambridge. And some of those permutations had a figure that was more organically shaped or um, showed that figure a little bit more in motion or it showed the body a little bit more foregrounded than the chair. And I thought, wow, if you can see these kinds of other alternatives, why isn't that more widely distributed? Because if you look at isotypes, is what they're called those pictograms of, of stick figures in the built environment. If you look, In most places, those are highly dynamic kind of active figures. If you think about on an exit sign, like what that figure is doing, just in two colors, how dynamic a design that is. Or if you think about the designs that you would see on pictograms or isotypes at like a national park, you'll see like a figure that's boating and a figure that's skiing. And you could tell really easily what's going on there, but the body is active and in motion. And I thought, wow, you know, the international symbol of access is this, profound historic provision right that is it's protected public space and entryway and free access you know built access ramps and so on for people using wheelchairs but not just those people anyone with a kind of mobility challenges anyone who is in need of the city to kind of come to them a little bit and what that that was so hard one legally that was so hard fought and so here's this symbol that stands for all those politics and the staticness of that symbol was really apparent to me relative to those, the, the dynamism of those politics. So I thought, well, how could the symbol in a more public way represent that? So we were not the first people to do a variation on that, but we were the first project to, to do a street art kind of campaign where the original design that I generated had a clear back sticker and it had this forward moving um, icon. So if you could kind of think about 99% invisible did the feature on us and that our icon is sort of like the old International symbol of access, but like italicized. So like moving forward in motion, you have to go to accessibleicon.org to really see what I'm talking about. But we, we showed um, We had a clear back sticker that showed the old symbol and the new one superimposed on top of it. And we knew that the kind of street art action of this would be a way to publicize that work because like we got some press coverage going, like, well, what does it mean for artists to to deface public property with an icon on this sign? And like, can they do that? And of course, that was not an interesting question to us. What was an interesting question was like, what is accessibility in public space? Right. And that got a microphone into our hands and especially into the hands of our partners who are people with disabilities who sort of said, well, what is it that they want? What is accessibility? Well, it's like transportation and employment and education and all those things. So, so the project, starts with a kind of design, a graphic design, but it's actually a much more, it's sort of a social design collaboration and partnership that's been running for a bunch of years now. So that design, I should say, we've never made any money on it. It is free and in the public domain. You can download it in multiple forms on accessibleicon.org. Once we did the street art campaign, people came to us and said, well, that's nice that it was, you know, lived as guerrilla art kind of for a while, but what if we want a new icon? Can we have it? And we said, yes, of course. So City of New York has adopted it formally. Plenty of companies and governmental bodies and so on have done it. And again, not to any profit of ours. That's the liberty of working in a university, right, is that you can work outside of kind of IP and copyright. So that's a big project that is now, yeah, almost a decade old. And is kind of a backdrop for a lot of other work that I do. I think I should say that For people listening, that I'm the mother of a child with Down syndrome who's now 13. I have three children, the eldest of whom has Down syndrome. I have a number of family members on the autism spectrum, so I have a long history in and deep ties to disability politics and kind of in my immediate DNA. So that's where a lot of this comes from. Yeah,
2: it's incredible. I'm, you know, I know I saw it first at my son's school. Um, so the school is, has adopted it. The Department of Education must have changed all their signage in the school. I don't know. It's 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 great because you notice it right away, but it's subtle too.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, for us, the big, the energy of that work was trying to not, again, because we were not the first to make the change, That but this is what's so, you know, critical in socially minded design is that if you're going to make a change if you're going to sort of alter and edit the built environment you actually have to create like a conceptually you have to draw a circle around it and point to it right for us that was the street art portion of that because it wasn't just about a kind of sign washing if you know what I mean I'm using scare quotes here like it wasn't just about like well let's represent this in a prettier nicer way and then let's let that kind of go away and be like better representation I'm more much more interested in a kind of um a social design process that actually gets at the friction and lets that kind of live as a question. I mean, to me, that's where design does its best work is when it's poking on the status quo, but in a way that you have to consider, like, what 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 is this? What do symbols do and how do they shape our cognition? And when people, when reporters and folks have said to us, you know, like, well, what is your goal, you know, sort of universal adoption of this new symbol? I always say, that's that's actually not the motivation. I'm much more interested in a far broader infrastructural level, kind of political and economic level of work around disability advocacy. Do images in the built environment make a difference there? I think they do. But to act as though that's a kind of sealed action just in and of itself would be to miss right, the point. And that's going to make change. Right, yeah. right. And design yeah. does its work when it kind of when it gets under your skin and actually isn't resolved. That's for me where the real energy lies.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. One of the things that we've been talking about, and um, I love that you have this great um, case study and it's really helpful, is what are the considerations to think about as you're designing for disability? You know, for us, it's kind of a newer space because we've... I think designing for chronic disease, while it's kind of tangentially related, I feel like there's very specific things to keep in mind. So what would you say? Like what are the considerations to keep in mind as you're designing for disability?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you've just named something really important there, which is that there's a there's a really complicated intertwined but also separate idea between disability on the one hand and debility on the other, and and sort of the way people think about their own condition, there are illnesses that people would wish away and they would wish for cures for tomorrow, right, and they're involved in the medical complex and they're making stories in the way that you all are working closely with. There are also people who would call themselves disabled and and this is important, right, people use different language for their own identities, but a lot of people in the activist community would call themselves disabled, not actually because they'd be looking for cures, as in that former case, but because they see a world that's actually not accommodating to their embodiment. So in other words, for a wheelchair user, they would say, I'm a disabled person. That's a political category. It's not because my legs don't walk. It's because the world is full of stairs. And so it's actually the mismatch between my body and the inherited shape of the world where disability is actually created. So that, what I've just laid out for you there is a difference between thinking about disability purely in a medical model, Mm -hmm. thinking of it instead as partly maybe even significantly, in a social model, so a socially produced phenomenon. That doesn't deny the facts of being in your body, right? That it does certain things that it doesn't do others. And some of those things you would be seeking medical treatment for, right? It is complicated, of course. But if you look, for instance, at the deaf community, there's a lot of solidarity and integrity and cultural pride around deafness in our culture. And this, you know, in my context for engineers, it's hard to understand why, Plenty of the deaf community would not be interested, for instance, in cochlear implants in design. I'm putting quotes around design for disability. A lot of people would think, well, the go-to would be cochlear implants automatically to think that the fix for the normalization of, the cure of this condition is the best use of design. And it's not to say that there isn't good design work to be done in cochlear implants. It's just that they're not for everybody. And the key moment when things get really interesting for designers this productive uncertainty like oh what what is it that people are asking for right i mean i think that this is actually a principle that's worth applying in any kind of design that intersects with medicine as you all are doing just because it's not at all clear right even given what are best practices in medicine or what are courses of treatment it's still not clear for any one individual what the wisest course of action may be right and you know, I was very, very moved by being mortal by Atul Gawande's new book, partly because he has people in the most acute and chronic conditions of their lives saying, really asking themselves, what is it that I want? What's a desirable life? What's a good day? What's a good week and a good month? And then designing their own choices from, from that position, right? So I just want to flag that. I don't know if you can use that in this call because it is separate from design for disability, but I just think it's an interesting kind of principle to think about. But let's go back to like deafness. Okay, so if we establish then that there's like a medical model of disability and a social model, if you employ the social model as you're thinking as a designer, like what what is it that would be the best use of my time and my role? Naturally, the best thing you can do, and there's no substitute for it, the best thing you can do is to talk to as many people as possible for whom you would be, with whom you would be choosing to design. So you mentioned, I know you know Liz Jackson who's in your neighborhood in New York and she has a whole fantastic collaboration now that's specifically designed for this to place disabled people in a context of design firms so that there's a true, she would say, of true with relationship, design with disability and not even design for disability. And I think that's been true of a number of human-centered designers would share that, that the, the sort of the best practice is to say to people, well, what is it that you are actually wanting, rather than the presumption that design for disability is always about even human-centered cure and therapy. That's right. one kind of aspect, but there's lots more.
2: Right. And just the challenge of assumptions and really kind of exploring what needs are, are there and right. I think is,
0: is at the core of it, right? Because That's it's right. not always so clear. That's right. And I think the best designers then, there's absolutely a need for a more flexible and accommodating world, right? And I think the best design practice is to take a truly, what I often call a medium agnostic approach to design, right? So in other words, I may be trained in graphic design, I may be trained in product design, but if I'm truly working on a complex challenge like this one, am I able to say, oh, you know what's required here? It's actually not a product. It's at architectural scale. So how would I then build the partnerships and the stakeholders to actually make that happen? So you can see this, for instance, in the condition of dementia, architecture and dementia is this rich burgeoning field of design. And it's partly right to try to get uh, treatment and dignified care to not just be the property of pharmacology, right? Like that's, that's our go-to in, the, in a purely medical model of any condition is to like, you to take up neurochemistry and to treat it with drugs, some of which I'm sure are very effective. But the use of architecture to think about dementia and to, tr- and to work with and inside dementia has been a way to rely less on pharmacology and to let people have a little bit more sentience, awake presence in their lives by making the environment more reassuring by reducing anxiety, by providing directional cues. I mean, it's just magical when you see that. So then when that opens up, you go like, oh my goodness, well, where else might design actually live? You know, it's, um, it's just an invitation for all of us in design to be thinking at all scales all the time, if we can. You know, if, if we're allowed to dig deeply into any one condition, we ask ourselves where, not how, but like where and when would design drop in here? That's that's the really exciting stuff. Right.
2: So I, I'm curious, you know, we've had a lot of discussions recently just within healthcare and design about the role of design or the designer in, in the process. And I'm curious to hear, especially in your role in teaching and writing, where does design live in this, this world where we really want to look at it in a 360 kind of... And view, right? We don't want to say it's only about the object. I think your story reminds me a lot of, um, there was a TED Talk. I can't remember her name, but she was looking at Parkinson's, and mm. she had designed a, a cup that was to be able to drink um, while you have tremors. Tremor, yeah. yeah, Like and a self-stabilizing she, kind of. Yeah. Yep. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, and from that, she realized like that was not really what she wanted to address. And she ended up doing kind of an exploration and discovered that neurologically, there's a phenomenon of with these contrasting uh, colors where her uncle could walk down steps without tremoring. She's got this beautiful case study of doing just, it was a flat piece where it looked kind of optically like stairs. Um, and the and her uncle could walk across it um, without tremors and so you know that expansion of like designer as as looking at object versus designing for need or designing for a uh it's even bigger than sometimes need it's it's like all of these different
0: conditions that are at work right that's right because it's like looking for looking at needs but also looking at wishes and preferences and thinking about quality of life and self-defined quality of life and, you know, ecologically sort of in the family system and the neighborhood quality of life, right? So what does that mean that a good designer does? The thing that I keep coming back to is the kind of these sort of counterpart skills for designers that are actually more about a relationship to questions and, and to inverting and reframing problems when they're proposed as such or challenges or, you know, letting things live as questions. What designers, I think, do is sort of go, okay, here's what's, what's being obviously presented to us, right? Is it like maybe a request from a client or perhaps a general kind of condition space when we're talking about um, health or disability. A good designer is able to both ask, you know, four or five questions around that central question and also able to zoom way out and then to zoom way in and, and has cultivated the kind of mental agility to do that, right? Where they, you can sort of see and go deep into the details of what people are telling you. You can abstract and create insights from that. And then you can, as I said, zoom out, zoom in with like absolute rapid kind of beautiful elasticity and say, well, which which is the scale that matters? And, and question all the kind of assumptions that are underneath all that conversation. I mean, I think designers, More than anything, they pay such close attention to what's happening in front of them and they're able to say, I can resist the kind of go-to linear problem solving that's being invited right now and I can pause and be uncertain. I often tell my students that what I'm looking for in their behavior is a mix of commitment and provisionality. So if they're holding all the possibilities in the provisional like this, right? They're spinning plates like, okay, maybe it's a product, maybe it's a building, maybe it's, you know, Um, an app. Okay, the agility to handle that is one kind of skill. And then can they converge and prototype and commit to something, some possibility, and to shape and hone that thing to be the best possible thing that it is, and then gather up your stakeholders and go like, is it this? And if it's not, can, can you as a designer dial back into provisionality again? And then can you do the commitment again? And can you go back to provisionality? And you can't have one without the other. Right. But I think good designers know how to kind of stitch together, you know, real prototypes and then unstitch everything. And like the, the kind of shedding of ego that you have to do there, the kind of give and take, but also the sharp point of view. I mean, that's the hardest thing of all, you know, and all the CAD and all of the, all of the how to's, you, you need those things for the, to, to be able to execute the commitment part. But, it's not as important as that frame of mind, don't you think?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I think that the inclination, a designerly inclination, right, is to continue to problem solve that path that you've gone through, right? And I yeah. think that a lot of designers are taught the kind of double diamond, right, of, of hone in, then expand out again and hone in again. But when they hone in, they're expanding within that honed in space. And what you're asking them to do is to b- back up in the double yeah. diamond, right? Like yeah. go back to where you were. Because I think that the um, the instinct is to say, I, well, this is the right direction. I have a point of view. This I believe that this is the right direction. And I think that the challenge when you do that is that you get too far down a path where you're unable to uh, remove or you're unable to really understand like where, the, where what is the value of what you're learning and where are you supposed to apply it.
0: That's right. And I think probably some people listening would say like, well, that's a tremendous luxury to be able to back way up because look, people have clients and uh, briefs and deliverables and budgets and timelines. And I don't doubt that that's all completely true. It's just that right now, especially when the politics of disability are opening up in a way. Where people with disabilities have been vocal for a long time about their own wishes and their own preferences, and their own needs. And they've been massively Profoundly ignored for most of that time. Right. So it, like the design for disability has been mostly a, a deeply medicalized and kind of paternalist medicalized treatment of conditions and enforced and normalization and whatever and you can look at this all in the history. So I, I think we are at a moment where disability is an especially delicate and politically charged matter where it's more important than ever that people's own voices are involved in these conversations and that you do spend that extra time before you rush to conclusions because right what people forget too is that the way we treat disability is the way in fact each of us will be treated if we live long enough to just age into um, a different kind of changing capacity for our bodies. We enter this world interdependent as young children and we exit it also interdependent, deeply interdependent. So all of those are shared kinds of vulnerabilities. And I think that's something actually to lean way into, <laughs> right, as opposed to sort of contenting ourselves with the, the cleverest option. I think there's plenty of cleverness. I'm asking for people to sort of just take a bit more time and, uh, with that productive uncertainty.
1: Yeah. So, do you have a launch date for your book Sarah?
0: Not yet I mean I'm like we had sort of said this year 2019 but I'm in the very fortunate position of my editor going like it's going to take what it takes like let's 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 make this book as good as we can so if I had to guess I'd say maybe in a year maybe a little bit beyond like that early 2020. So thanks for asking. Does that have a title? Oh this is so hard. This is like the hardest thing. (laughs) Yeah it's really hard. I, no, we really don't. And I keep every few months I'll send my editor something. And she'll go like, "That's not quite it." And she's very smart. She's been doing this for a long time. So, and she's right every time. But we'll get there. I think probably at the very last minute. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes
1: yeah that's the process well good luck it's um it's a that's a brave task you're taking on it's um it's a labor of love lots of love
0: <laughs> and gen- genuine questions right that's right the questions are real they you know they're nourishing in and of themselves so it's like right. chasing that thing yeah
2: that's right so amazing to hear what you're doing it's been too long thank you so thank much you. for being on the
0: podcast okay
2: All right, take care you guys bye, bye sarah bye. take care We just wanted to thank Sarah for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Sarah. So stay tuned for our next episode
1: coming it's up. The last one. Yeah, we hope you guys love it. And if you do, then you should think about subscribing to us at yanoyah yeah, N-O podcast you can find us on
2: the internet and on instagram yes we've been trying to post more um so like our stuff please and subscribe this episode was not recorded at figure eight as you can probably tell from the the quality
1: this episode was edited and produced by tory our
2: theme song is written and performed by Chuck Smith. See you next time on the final episode.